Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. In our last episode, the Handel and Haydn Society's artistic director, Harry Christophers, and I began a conversation rooted in Bach's St. Matthew Passion. Harry was meant to lead a group of 80 singers, players, and soloists in two performances of the work, but these were canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic that the entire planet is battling. In lieu of performing with him, I've treated myself and you, the listener, to some of Harry's insights on the passion, among other things. There was more to discuss, and I'm delighted Harry could join me once more to continue our chat. Harry, welcome back. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Guy. Welcome to you. So, little known fact, I'm 41, and I've been studying Bach's suites for unaccompanied cello since I was 13, about a year after I began playing the instrument. I intend to continue until something stops me. These are central to my musical life, and I'm not unique in that way. But I've met cellists, people I admire, who got to a point where they felt we were deifying Bach, deifying the music, and that Bach would balk at this. I don't necessarily agree, but I thought about this when preparing to speak with you. Literally everything said about the St. Matthew Passion by practically everyone is put in reverential, almost grandiose terms, and I wonder if you've ever had a counter-reaction. Terms like monumental, glorious, the greatest... Wow. I mean, it's the great passion. I mean, there's not, there's, nobody has approached anything of this magnitude, really, uh, in a motion of a complete biblical story. But the thing about the Matthew passion, it's, it's not just a passion of St. Matthew's. It's the picanda libretto that's put around it, all the arias that are shaped around that, the chorales. I think it's the whole picture of this piece that, that, that makes it so monumental. And the fact that, it, you know, this was part of Vespers on Good Friday. I mean, the musical passion was, was clearly the highlight of the year in, in Leipzig. The idea of that happening today in a in a religious service, something of this monumental scale, is quite unbelievable. I suppose to us as modern churchgoers or whatever, you know, our attention span is not what it was in Bach's day. Our idea of going to church may be uh, at the most an hour's service. I mean, we didn't certainly didn't sit through anything that was going to last three hours or over. But then you take that out of context of Bach's time and you bring this now to the console because this is such a great work. We have to constantly remind people that the Baroque era, the main employment for any musician was either in the court or the church. Um, and that was it. You know, obviously, Italy at the time had opera happening, but it, that wasn't so prevalent at all in, in, in Germany. Music for the church was very much the top post for most musicians. And today, to hear this piece brought into concert halls, brought 
by groups like H and H into a semblance of what it might have sounded like in Bach's day is just so unique. Do you find that this informs your approach to the piece, the fact that it was meant for a Vesper service on Good Friday, or is it appropriate enough to perform it as a concert work? Does this go through your mind as you prepare for it? Well, yeah, interesting you say that, Guy, because I, you know, I was toying with this performance, having three or four of the chorales sang by the entire audience. Bach uses the same melody on, I think, for five chorales in the Matthew Passion. They're phenomenal tunes, great harmonies. I mean, those five chorales, the harmonies are completely and utterly different underneath. So I thought of having the audience uh, join in for those to, to bring some of the feeling of, of the, the whole congregation knowing those chorales and singing them into the concert performance. But then I thought, actually, if we're performing it to an audience, we therefore should actually also perform the chorales in a way that brings across the text. So that, in a sense, for me as a conductor, is trying to sort of mold this whole piece into an experience. I have a concept of how I'm going to get from beginning to end of each part, um, but then there are various things within that that you need to work out how how the soloists are going to react. Their picando text arias are reactions to what the evangelist and the gospel have stated prior to it. The evangelist and Christus have to work out a relationship between them because they are constant within their recitatives. And the interesting thing with Bach, of course, is that he has Christ accompanied by the strings of Orchestra One, which is absolutely unique and a brilliant concept. The evangelist singing the uh, spoken text, one word, one syllable, making it clearly understandable. Those two need to know, you know how they're going to work together. Stunde, schrie Jesu 
tenor Joshua Ellicott as the evangelist and baritone Roderick Williams as Christus in Bach's St. Matthew Passion with the Handel and Haydn Society, directed by Harry Christophers in March 2015. For the benefit of our audience, just let's break down for a moment mm. the kind of music one hears in the St. Matthew Passion. You have Bach's use of the chorus, both in chorale singing and also the chorus is like a Greek chorus commenting yeah. on the action. You have the evangelist, a tenor, moving the action along with words directly from the gospel. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you have arias commenting on what has been said. Uh, and that text is uh, by a librettist, a poet, yes. in this case, Picander. So yeah. when you prepare for this piece, it sounds like you are describing a process of meticulously timing out for dramatic purposes to highlight each of those roles to the full extent of, of the power and the impact that they might have. In a, in a sense, yes. When we have the rehearsal with Evangelist and Christus, in this case it would have been Josh Ellicott and Matthew Brooke and, and you and Ian playing the, uh, the chamber organ at that and working out how those two characters are going to relate to each other. Is Christ going to be uh, portrayed predominantly, I mean he is of course a strong character, but is the strength of his message done in the power of the voice or is there an accent on, on the humility of Christ as God's son on earth? You need to just work that. Um, the Evangelist Angels, of course, as you say, is giving us the scripture, the, the, the passion story. And with Bach, occasionally he will give that evangelist on certain bits of text. He will be a little bit more pictorial in the continuo course that he has underneath the evangelist. And sometimes he'll allow the evangelist to just color things. I'm thinking particularly of, of Peter's denial. And here's the cock crow. <laughs> then talk about how Christ is portrayed. We mentioned earlier that, you know, the Christ is in these restatives where the dialogue is going along quickly. He's accompanied by the strings of Orchestra One. And that is beautifully and subtly done. I mean, right from the very start, I'm, I'm thinking of when Christ comes into the Gethsemane and he says to the disciples, sit while I pray. And you get this just beautiful moment where the strings are playing a chord in this kind of sedentary sit and making the disciples sit there is just very very static and then he just slightly embellishes the words while i pray it's quite quite beautiful <laughs> 
zu einem Hofe. Er hieß Gethsemane und sprach zu seinen Jüngern, Setzet euch hin, bis dass ich dorthin gehe und The chorus plays an immense part, not only in the chorales, which we've talked about already, but then also in these choruses, these tourbar choruses, where they're often the crowd, um, sometimes baying for Jesus' death. in performance, one of my scariest moments every time I perform the Matthew Passion is the final number of part one, that chorale for both orchestras and, uh, and then quite a complex alto tenor bass harmonization underneath it. with 16th notes. You can imagine the two orchestras, they're facing each other, and it's a nightmare to keep together. <laughs> well, you know, much of what I do personally when we perform this work is the performance of recitatives, which are essentially sung speech, <clears throat> where most of the action is in the voice and the continuo section, the, the bass section, which in this case is usually myself and our organist, Ian Watson, place chords in specific places, but these aren't conducted. This is us following the <clears throat> singer, who oftentimes is 10 or more feet away in a very, very large hall. And that's by way of saying that fear is something I live with in this, <laughs> in this music uh, and I'm very familiar with. When you describe Christ's accompanied recitatives, it sounds to me like you're pointing out details that askew this idea that a religious work meant for the church should have a somewhat removed... I mean, I wasn't raised in the Christian tradition, no. but of what I know, for instance, in a Catholic service formerly given in Latin, there was certainly a divide between the congregation and the officiants. Mm -hmm. So that was by design, and Luther worked to bridge that gap and invite the congregation into the service, which is, of course, what Bach's tradition is. One could assume a posture of presenting what is essentially church music in a somewhat removed way, and yet I hear you pointing out details that sound operatic, that sound like this music is designed to be immediate, exciting, mournful, the, the whole spectrum of, of human emotion. That's one of the things that I've admired most playing this work with you. And by the way, my first encounter with St. Matthew Passion was with Handel and Haydn and you. I'd, I'd heard the work, I'd never performed it. Yeah. And one of the things that strikes me is how immediate the interpretation is and how dramatic it is. Uh, Bach didn't compose an opera. 
Leipzig was a very conservative town that didn't have an opera. Mm-hmm. Is there a correlation, do you feel, if, if Bach composed opera, would it sound sort of like this? I mean, is this... This would have been it. I think it is. It's the nearest he got to an opera. Um, I mean, I think, I think as you said before, you know, you look back to sort of the Catholic liturgy, which, uh, you know, back in Renaissance times, you know, the choral sound, the choir was completely detached from what was going on at the high altar, and the music was a decoration for the liturgy. It was just an adornment of it. This is Bach speaking directly to his congregation and bringing the passion story to, to life. You, he brings you into making you think, almost meditate, I suppose, about what has just happened, what you've been, what you've been told about. I mean, the, the, the famous instance of that, of course, is Ebamadi, where you've, you've got this most amazing aria coming straight after Peter's denial. And he's making you as a a congregation today as an audience totally reflect on on Peter's anguish of what he's just done.
That was mezzo-soprano Anna Stefani, concertmaster Aislinn Noski, and the Handel and Haydn Society performing the aria El Balmedich from Bach's St. Matthew Passion. And interesting, you know, that you know, Bach should actually have an alto voice sing that. That says a lot, you know, he, he doesn't have the tenor doing it, which would be the obvious choice for Peter. He has a completely different voice. What do you think that choice of voice says about his opinion of the text or that moment in the story? I think, you know, it's interesting because I think he just felt that it needed that, that almost maternal you know, comfort on Peter. Have mercy, Lord, on me, look at my bitter weeping. It's, it's heart-rendering beautiful. The other thing with that aria, like all the best arias in the Matthew Passion, it's an instrumental solo working with, with a vocal soloist and sort of, they're sort of handing the baton of emotion over to each other as, as the piece goes through and then, then occasionally duetting together. It's, yeah, it's exquisite. It's incredible that he allows an instrumentalist, who of course has no text, to comment on the content of the text where he could have done. I oftentimes arrive at what I believe about Bach by asking myself what a different composer and by definition a lesser composer would have done. A lesser composer might have given the tune to the entire violin section and equally beautiful in a different way. His choices indicate they're so fraught with meaning and so much to do differently, I suppose, every time you approach it. Has your interpretation changed over the years and how? It's changed a lot. I mean, I I feel I've sort of begun to grow into Bach, and I feel I'm still not there yet. I have to be totally honest. I find conducting Bach difficult. Handel is, I feel it's sort of in my blood. And Bach, I just feel that as the years go on, I find a way into Bach. Part of that is is a sort of fear of Bach because the technical demands he makes on everybody is incredible. And even in the rest of T's, you can go through and you can look at his figures that he puts in there. And they can be interpreted in so many ways. You know, how many notes does the organ play, actually? Or does he sort of thin the chord out? You know, these are all things that will paint the text in a really interesting way. And that's why we have a three-hour rehearsal totally devoted to the rest of T's, because there are so many different ways of doing it and moods you can create. As you said before, I mean, those rest of T's are scary. You've got to be totally with the evangelist, haven't you? You've got to breathe with him, feel his breath, feel his emotion, and be an organic part of that. When we do it well, that is phenomenal, and it's so exciting. Crucial, though, isn't it? It's exactly how I feel. It's it's an organic part, and, and therefore there has to be a symbiosis with the singer. And at the same time, as much as we rehearse in the moment, an artist may be moved by any number of external or internal impulses and take things a slightly different direction. And you have to go along for the ride. And yeah. you know, I remember in the past performing with Joshua, and there are some recitatives where you couldn't believe that German could be spoken that quickly. <laughs> Suddenly know, it takes off. Yeah. And it feels true. It feels right for the moment. Yeah. Uh, and not exactly rehearsed, but so moving and so pertinent to the drama at yeah, any given point. So I think the whole approach, the, the way an evangelist sings them has changed a lot over the years. I mean, if you look right back, and certainly in England, times when Peter Pears was singing the evangelist, beautifully sung, quite metronomic in a way, but beautifully rendered. And then along comes Kurt Equilux, uh, I think on the old Arnencore recording, and suddenly we're into a different world of where the tenor voice is much lighter and really just speaking the text at us. Then Peter Schreier later on, again, quite Germanic in his approach, but the text quite clear, almost like, you know, he is 
simply reciting the Passion. And now I think we've sort of got a blend of the two. We've got the Mark Padmore and the co who are reciting the text was a lot, but then also putting a heck of a lot of drama into it and making sure there are half a dozen purple passages for the evangelists where they can really sing quite full-bloodedly and get through the real pictorial nature of what uh, Bach's writing. I think the chorus is quite interesting in that. We talked about the way the chorus does the chorales. The, the chorus obviously have a major part through the, the Passion. When they're not doing chorales, they're part of the Passion story of, the, of St. Matthew's text. Either used choir one or choir two, sometimes uh, antiphonally, where later on in part two, where the, the two of our chorus is shouting at him. He saves others. He can't save himself. And they're mocking him. And he uses two choruses there. And then I think the only moment in the Passion where he brings the two choruses together in unison is for the uh, wonderful um, two bars, truly, this was the Son of God. Can you explain to us what turba chorus uh, means, where the name so, comes so, from? So turba in Latin means crowd. So it's basically the the, you know, the crowd scene through the passion story and the crowd that are obeying for, for Christ's death when they said, "Who do you want me to? Who do you, who would you want released to you?" And they say, "Barabbas." That is the turba. That's the crowd speaking. So you've mentioned several people's approach to recitative, the way that they approach speaking the text, as it were. Working with you, almost nothing has been emphasized more than the importance of the text. I go on about it, don't I? <laughs> well, I, I hear how passionately you speak about it. This is a telling of a story, and you cannot understand the story if you cannot understand the text, even though as we perform the work in German in an English-speaking country, it's likely that many, if not most, of our listeners do not speak German, certainly not the German of Bach's time. And yet you find that the way that singers treat text impacts the way the instrumentalists play their parts, whether they are doubling them or not. This is a direction you give to the orchestra just as much as you give it to the singers. You speak about your relationship yeah. with the it's, text. It's a non-negotiable. The whole of the passion story, it's all about the text. It could be also a, you know, a motet by Palestrina or Victoria. Those are in Latin nobody speaks Latin, so it's the same principle that we need to convey the meaning of what we're talking about to an audience where the language is not their native language. Okay, in the console we have the bonus of a, a program book, but there'll be many listeners there who, who won't look at the program to find the text. They'll soak it up. They will hear the emotion of that text. They will get the feeling of it from how we perform it, or I hope they will. I mean, that as performers, and particularly as instrumentalists, you know, one has to be totally aware of the text that's flying about you. Even in those tour bar choruses I mentioned where the orchestra is at one with the chorus is playing exactly the same notes as the chorus as singing we call collapate. Uh, those players need to be inflecting those words in the same way as the singers are inflecting them to bring out what their sense of and the emotion and uh, the drama that's being displayed. It's so, so important. And visually as well. I mean, I think that's what H&H &H we're pretty good at, I think. We visually connect with the music, so we're automatically 
showing the listener from our faces also what the emotions that are being displayed in the music. That's constantly something I hear from audience members when they come to hear us at Symphony Hall, which is a big hall to, you know, to see everybody. You've heard me say many a time that you know, if you go to the theatre and you watch a great actor, you see you know, their eyes change from being small eyes to massive great eyes, their faces change. You get so much from the animation of, of the performance on stage. The opportunity to perform with a chorus on a regular basis. I mean, we are a choral society, essentially. That is our history. And especially a chorus that is as accomplished as ours and under the direction of someone who cares so much about text has been probably the single most important element in developing my approach to any music, instrumental or otherwise. The relationship between language, between rhetoric and music has been established for centuries, writer after writer in the 17th and 18th century speaks of the musician's work being the same as that of an orator mm. and being able to really experience that every time we get together with you in the chorus has influenced everything I do in no. pretty much all music. It's been a complete gift and when you spoke earlier about the difficulty of Bach's instrumental writing and the need for the instrumentalists to listen to the vocalists and take the lead from what the vocalists are doing. That skill, which I'm still developing and probably will work on developing for a but long time. But you're a natural guy. And I think, you know, when sort of musicianship and emotion is in your personality and that comes across in the music, it's great when we have a wonderful team of soloists we can't but relate to what they're doing and be pulled into their world. Because I think the important thing about any of these areas in the passion is that when you hear the emotion that's being brought across in that voice, the inflection of the text, the painting of various phrases. I mean, Bach does so much. He gives us the notes. Uh, he gives us the order of the notes they've got to be uh, sung or played in, but it's then to, up to us as performers to actually make that whole come to some element of perfection and, and massive emotion. I talk about emotion a lot, but I think you know that is so important when they're playing to be at one with the music, but also making sure we give of ourselves out to the audience, and I think that's what we do really well at H&H. &H. And so we'll be hoping to do it again soon. Yes. Harry, this has been an illuminating discussion. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights. It's a great pleasure, Guy. Thank you. Harry Christophers is Artistic Director of the Handel and Haydn Society. Thank you for tuning in. You can listen to more episodes of H&H's podcast on our website, handelandheiden.org slash podcast. There you can also find supplementary materials such as program notes, artist biographies, definitions of some of the terms used in this episode, and even a copy of Bach's manuscript of his St. Matthew Passion. I hope you'll join me for the next episode. Yeah.